the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to The Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken Cruzado, and today I will be filling in for Pastor Ron, who is away in California at the International Pastors Conference. Uh, so both he and Paula, are, they should be there now. I'm pretty sure they're already checked in. I heard from him on his uh, layover, doing well. He's pretty excited about this conference. It's an important one. So you can keep him in prayer, uh, specifically that he will be encouraged and hear from the Lord and get to spend some time with uh, fellow Calvary pastors there in California. In the meantime, our show continues. As usual, we're here to answer your questions, here to help you with the Bible, understand doctrine, um, any questions about Jesus, or how to put the Word of God into practice in your life. That's what this show is for. And so, let me give you the phone numbers if you want to call in. 210-340-9585. 210-340-9585. If you're out of the area, the local area, there's a toll-free number. That's 877-630-5757. Eight seven seven six three zero five seven five seven. We've also got an email address, and so you can use this to submit your questions. And the email address is questions at calvarysa.com. Questions at calvarysa.com. One more thing, there's our church app you can use to submit your questions if that's easier for you, there's a tab there that allows you to type your question and hit submit. It'll go right into our inbox. You can also listen to the show using the KSLR app. If you're driving, it's so much easier to call in because there's a button there at the top that says call now and you'll be connected to the radio studio. You can ask your question on the air. Well, I said already it's the Monday edition. And so that means here at Calvary Chapel, uh, just by way of scheduling, it's our men's and women's and youth Bible study night. And this is a great night for the family. Everybody gets together for worship. And then we break out into our Bible study groups. And so uh, if that's something that you're interested in and then have never been to, you're more than welcome to join us tonight at seven o'clock here at Calvary Chapel. I hope you had a great day at church yesterday. We sure did here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, Pastor Ron taught out of Acts chapter 21. And one of the key things that really stuck to me was how Paul the Apostle would not be dissuaded. And I think the practical application of this is so important. Now, contextually, it was when Paul was leaving on his way back to Jerusalem, and there were some well-meaning people, dear friends of his, that were trying to get him not to go because they knew what was in store for him. But 
the application or the response by Paul the Apostle was that he would not be dissuaded. He wanted to seek God's will for his life, no matter what it meant. And I think there's such rich application there for for those of us that are born-again Christians. We can't be so easily dissuaded by the things of this world, even well-intentioned people. You know, our world is designed, our society is designed to try to change our mind about what we know to be true. But when you know Jesus and you know his word and you know his will for your life, um, you can't let anything change your mind. So that was really encouraging for me. I hope, again, you had a great time at church yesterday. I hope people got saved because that's what we do. And so... Oh, before I get to my questions, we've got a phone call. So let's go to line one. Ron, you're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ken. How are you doing, sir? Hi, Ron. I'm doing well. Okay, let me turn on this radio even a little bit more here. I have a um, friend that's um, these uh, ex- absolute devout Baptist, Christian Baptist, and... Um, I noticed something probably three years ago when I made a comment that I was, I was helping out the Christians for um, this organization that helps out elderly Jews, and um, especially the Holocaust victims with a $25 food box. And okay. he had nothing good to say about that. Matter of fact, that kind of lit his fuse. And as a Christian, I was just shocked that he had a disdain, mm. almost a hate for Jerusalem, for Jews, um, as I, within two years, I, I didn't research it immediately, but I realized there's something called replacement theology. And right. he's claiming that Jew, the, Jerusalem is no longer Jerusalem. They weren't uh, reconstituted according to God's word, which he did. He brought them back, what was it, 19, was it 49, 39? about 48. And, yes, 48, the, the, there you go. Yes. Thank you. But he has um, not any, even a low regard. He's, he, he thinks Jews are not even Jews. Israel is not Israel. Jerusalem is not Jerusalem. And right. I just wanted to hear your perspective on this thing called replacement theology in light of the fact that, you know, they're the apple of... Absolutely. Absolutely, Ron. I, I can comment on this, and I do have an answer for you. Uh, I think your discernment is correct, Ron. Uh, There is uh, a a theology out there that believes that the church replaces Israel. And that's exactly what you described there. This replacement theology, this is what it's called. And some would say that that's a a name, um, a pejorative name, that it it, it doesn't describe uh, correctly what they actually believe. Some within Reformed theology, believe this. Uh, but, but the truth is, that's the essence of what they believe. If, if they believe that, if anyone believes that the, the church has replaced Israel, well, then they don't believe what the Bible says. They don't believe that God keeps his promises. What we do know is that the Bible teaches us that God made specific promises to Israel, that have yet to be fulfilled. And what those who subscribe to this replacement theology, they say, no, 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 well, well, the church now becomes the one that inherits these promises, and so God will fulfill these promises previously made to Israel in the church. But that that is not only to confuse Scripture, but it's to, to render God a liar. Because... His promises to Abraham, his promises to Israel, his promises to uh, the land that they would inherit, and everything else that God gave to the people of Israel as promises that have yet to be fulfilled, that makes him somebody that doesn't keep his promises. And that is antithetical to the character and nature of God. Now, the what we do here at Calvary Chapel is... We teach the Bible from a dispensationalist view. And what that simply means is this. We believe that Israel 
has promises that are yet to be fulfilled that are made by God, and that God will fulfill these promises during the time of tribulation and afterwards. Um, right now we're in a age of or dispensation of grace where God has not forgotten Israel, but he has temporarily put his focus off of Israel because of their disobedience. And he has turned his attention to the church where today we share the message of God that you can be born again. You can have your sins forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. Whether you're a Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. This is what we call the age or the dispensation of grace. Now, there will come a time again where God will turn his attention back to Israel. And this will be a time of judgment and a time of afterwards, a time of fulfillment where God restores Israel and then keeps his promises. Now, to, to your question, Ron, about why there are some Christians that have this disdain for Israel, you know, I I really can't answer it other than saying um, these are demonic thoughts. They really are. Everything that is uh, anti-Semitic, and right now what we're seeing in this country and really all over the world is such an a rise in anti-Semitism that is really nothing but demonic. God's, like you said, the apple of God's eye really is Israel. Not that they're perfect. They have been disobedient and they have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And today our message is the same to Jews and to people who aren't Jews. The only way you can be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And and maybe through that, some have grown in disdain. I know that there were some cults and false religions that teach that uh, the Jews are the enemy because they killed Jesus, but that's, I mean, Jesus was a Jew. And, and you know, when Paul, the apostle, declared the gospel message, he made it absolutely clear. The, the gospel is first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Jesus himself came to the Jews when, when he was speaking to the Syrophoenician woman. I think it's in Matthew chapter 11. He said, I came to the Jews for the kingdom of God. And then when she had begged, but even the dogs will eat the crumbs off of the table, he recognized her faith. And some, maybe because of that, have grown, uh, using your word, Ron, uh, disdainful towards the Jews. But the essence of it, the root of it, it really is demonic. Anti-Semitism is simply a rebellion against God's word and against God's heart. Uh, pray for your friend. Don't argue and don't debate. I mean, these are things that that I, I can't understand for the life of me, how Christians, people who proclaim to be Christians can think this way. But, you know, the enemy, he is powerful and deceptive. So, Ron, I, I hope that helps. That's a long answer to your question about replacement theology, but that's what they teach. So thank you for your question. Uh, and... Uh, you know, pray for your friend. Pray for your friend because uh, if you're still in conversation with him, uh, one thing that we know for sure is this, that the devil is a master of deception. And all he wants to do is to get us, those of us who follow Jesus, Christians, to, to take our eyes off of Jesus and we start focusing on people groups and political beliefs. We start focusing on uh, e- economic structures and 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 and, and you know country p- p- politics and and policies, and none of that, none of that is God's heart. We look at people, no matter what culture they come from, no matter what background they come from, no matter what economic, um, socioeconomic background they they grew up in. They are the object of God's affection. 
And our job as Christians is to share the hope of Jesus Christ to all of them. So, Ron, thank you for your call and thank you for your question. Let's go on to the questions that have been submitted. The phone lines are open if you want to call in. The first one's from Reuben. Reuben says, I was listening to Pastor Ron Sunday, and I didn't catch something he said in the beginning. He mentioned that the he mentioned that along the lines that the Holy Spirit was leading Paul to Jerusalem, but the Bible also says that he was warned not to go. I know it's not a contradiction, but it sounds like one. Can you explain? Um, I was just talking about this at the beginning, uh, Reuben, so let me answer that. Uh, when we read about Agabus and all the others that were warning Paul not to go, it clearly says in the scriptures there in Acts chapter 21 that they were, um, it was the Holy Spirit that was leading them to speak. But we also know, and Paul was fully convinced, that it was the Holy Spirit that was telling him he has to go back to Jerusalem. And the point of the passage is not that God contradicts himself because he does not, Reuben. He does not. And you're right. It's not a contradiction. But what became abundantly clear in that passage is is this, and this is the practical application. Sometimes God will lead us according to his will into difficult situations. Now, we don't like to hear that. We think, well, if we follow God's will, that means he's going to make everything easy. That everything will be smooth and everybody will get along and everybody will agree. That's not true. In fact, what you'll find quite often is is that, Reuben, when you are committed to following God's will, you will find opposition. Now, in this particular case, the people that were exhorting Paul not to go to Jerusalem were doing so because they love him. But, but, but Paul would say to them, why are you doing this? Why are you breaking my heart? You see, at that point, when they would stop him from going, that no longer was of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was using those people who loved Paul dearly to warn him, to say, look, this is what's going to happen when you get to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen to you if you go. But God explaining what was going to happen to him, the difficult things that were going to happen to him, is not the same thing as God saying, don't go. God was saying, go, but it's going to be hard, but I need you to go. And so that's why Paul would not be dissuaded. And I mentioned it earlier. I'll say it real quickly again. This is so important for those of us who are Christians It doesn't mean that we just go to church. It doesn't mean that we listen to Christian music in our car and we don't listen to secular music. It it, it doesn't mean we wear Christian t-shirts all the time instead of secular t-shirts. No, what it really means is that you, as a Christian, have a plan that God has laid out for you His will for your life is to obey him. And if you obey him today, you'll be in his will today. If you obey him tomorrow, you'll be in his will tomorrow. And as you do that over and over and over, you'll not only grow in your knowledge of God, which is what we learn uh, in Colossians chapter 1, But we also grow in the knowledge of his will for our lives. And this is so important. This is so important. Because we want to grow in knowledge of all kinds of things. We want to know everything about everything. But what God says to do is to grow in the knowledge of him and the knowledge of his will for your life. Then you'll be in his will. 
And then when you're in God's will, when people who try to dissuade you or distract you, when they try to discourage you, you'll know that's not from Jesus. And you need to keep going. It doesn't mean that they're against you. It, it, it simply means that, that God may be testing you. And this is important for us. We need to be tested. Paul would write to the Corinthians in his first letter, every man who has been given a trust must prove faithful. And so if God's will in our lives is going to be accomplished on a daily basis, just living for him, we have to expect to be tested. Tests are good because they they tell us if we're in the will of God or not. Now, the test, we have to be careful here because the results of the test does not mean that if, uh, if something is easy or clear, then, then this is confirmation that this is God's will. And that's just the way our, our, our human psyche thinks. But we are tested so that we know whether what we're doing today is with the right heart and according to what he's told us to do. That's it. You don't have to have the answers for tomorrow. You walk in his will tomorrow, he will give you the grace that you need tomorrow. And guys, this is what sanctification looks like. And so, Ruben, I hope that helps. Long answer, but the short answer is no contradiction here. Simple explanation is that sometimes following God's will for your life is going to be difficult. And, and that's good for us. Um, we are inside of five minutes. Uh, so I don't have time to give you phone call. Uh, the phone numbers, I'll do that at the beginning of the second half. Um, let me move on to the questions that have been submitted here. Uh, the next one is from Anonymous. I listened to the Bible study in Acts yesterday. Okay, so another one from yesterday, and I enjoyed it. I have two related questions. If there were prophetesses, uh, then how come we cannot have them today? And I always thought that John the Baptist was the last prophet. How come there are still prophets after him? Okay, Anonymous. Uh, two good questions, and these are important too. So yesterday's passage, Paul... Pastor Ron was uh, also talking about Philip. Philip's daughters, his four daughters, were prophetesses, like you mentioned. And his four daughters were uh, godly women serving according to their gifting. But the uh, office that they occupied or, or, or the, the, the gift that they were exercising uh, is different than John the Baptist. And so you'll remember when Jesus would speak about John the Baptist in, uh, I think it's Luke chapter 16, verse 16, um, he would say about John the Baptist that he is the, or the law and the prophets were up to John, meaning they were prophesied until John came, indicating he would be the last. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says the same thing, that John the Baptist would be the last of the Old Testament prophets. That's what he was talking about. Those who would foretell the coming of the Messiah, the prophets from the past, Elijah and Elisha, and all the other prophets in the Old Testament were doing the same thing that John the Baptist was, which is proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. That's why John would be the last. He would be the last of the Old Testament prophets. Now, there were still other prophets that came after him. Obviously, here again, the four prophetesses, the daughters of Philip, but these were New Testament prophets. So they would go back or look back and point people to the cross. Now, your question here, Anonymous, is, well, if they 
the, they were there in the New Testament, how come we don't have them today? Well, the answer is pretty simple because Paul himself explains in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that the, the prophets and the apostles laid the foundation upon which the church is to be built. There, so there are pastors and teachers and evangelists. Those would be giftings and offices that people would occupy to build the church. But the apostles and the prophets have laid the foundation. So there's no other foundation to lay. That's why the office of the prophet and the apostle is closed today. We don't need the foundation to be established. We need to build upon the foundation, which is the teaching of God's word. And that's what the role of the pastors and the teacher is for. And so anonymous, I hope that helps. Really good question. Something that comes up and, you know, I understand there may be churches that teach something else, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Well, you can hear the music. That means we are at the end of the first half of the Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken, and we'll be back in two minutes. back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. This is the second half of the Monday edition. If you're just tuning in, Pastor Ron is out of uh, town this week, actually till Wednesday. So, both he and Paula will be back on air here for the date day edition on Thursday. But until then, uh, I will be filling in for Pastor Ron here on the Word to Stand Out for Life. We're here to take your questions and calls about the Bible, about doctrine, about Jesus. The show continues the same way we, we always do, which is uh, helping you fall in love with Jesus. And if there's any way we can do that through clarifying uh, how to put the Word of God into practice in your life? Well, that's why we're here. And so uh, I have phone numbers to give you. Let me give this quickly, and then we'll move on to our questions. 210-340-9585, 210-340-9585. The toll-free number, if you're out of the area, is 877 630 that's 877-630-5757. The email address is questions at calvarysa.com. Questions at calvarysa.com. And then we'll get uh, your questions answered on the air. All right. The next question, while well, the phone lines are open, uh, is from Raymond. Raymond says, why do you say... Living together is sin if the Bible doesn't say that. Well, Raymond, you are correct. The Bible does not explicitly say that cohabitating or living together is a sin. But the Bible also doesn't say that a lot of things that are sin, it doesn't explicitly say that they are. And so what we do, though, is look to what we know the Bible does say. We look at the nature and the character of God, and we see if it aligns with our life. And we know this, First Thessalonians chapter 4, is very clear, though it has nothing to do with cohabitating. It, it says that it is God's will that we are to be sanctified. That means set apart and holy, and that we are to abstain from sexual immorality. That's very clear. It is God's will. Now, I'm sure a follow-up question or a follow-up thought is one that I hear in counseling all the time, which is, well, we are not having sex, though. We are living together, but we are not having sex. We sleep in separate rooms. And, and my response to that is always this, but why compromise? 
Why tempt yourselves? Why not honor the Lord by honoring each other? If it is God's will for you guys to get married, then then prepare your hearts for a godly marriage by living a godly life today. And and I think this is important because one of the things that I say in counseling is look premarital counseling is if you're going to dishonor the Lord now, if you're going to defile each other now, if you're going to compromise in your relationship now, then when you get married, it'll be even worse. Your compromise will be even greater. The defilement would be great. Even if you're married, your comp- your willingness to compromise according to God's word will be even greater. And so Raymond, uh, you know, even if the Bible doesn't explicitly say that cohabitating together is sin, why tempt yourselves and why compromise in your walk with Jesus? Now, I'm going to assume, Raymond, that you're asking this question as born-again Christians. Um, people who aren't saved, they don't care about this. And, and that's what I would expect from them. But if Christians say that their life is submitted unto the Lord and that they live their life according to God's will and remaining faithful to what the scriptures say to do, then it becomes obvious that living together is not the heart of God. And and even this, with, I, I would say, uh, you know, when in counseling, when when I ask them why, okay, well then why are you living together? Oftentimes, uh, the answers are, and I don't know you, you Raymond, I don't know what the case is here, and I, I don't even know if this is about you, but the answers are vary, but they all essentially come down to the same reason, which is it's it's just a lot easier, makes more sense. And I always ask them, is it worth compromising your walk with Jesus? now so that you could make things a little bit easier it's not you know whatever you're doing now if you're saving some money by living together if you're if your uh, you know tax laws are, are are more beneficial to you whatever the case may be uh, I always tell them like it's going to cost you way more later on it's going to cost more than money. And why not set the standard now? Why not set the habit or the practice of honoring God in his word by being obedient to do what he says now? That's the best thing you can do for your marriage when you eventually get married. Now, if you're just living together and and and, and you, you're not planning to get married, then... I, I, I tell them you guys shouldn't even be together then. Again, as Christians, if we're sitting in counseling and, and if you want to know what God's will is for your life and you're not willing to receive it and obey it, then oh, why are you guys even together? Because what you're doing is you are causing each other to stumble. And I understand, again, say the same thing. We're not having sex. We're staying pure. That's compromise. And Raymond, just don't do it. Just don't do it. It's one of those things that, and this is the last thing I'll say and then we'll move on. One of the things that the enemy is so clever in doing in the lives of those who are professing Christians is getting them to compromise, getting us to just to disobey God's word just a little bit. Not outright disobedience, just a little bit. Well, a little disobedience is outright disobedience. And you fling the door open wide for the enemy to come in and mess with you. It's not a little crack. You're opening the door for the enemy. And so, Raymond, just don't do it. Honor the Lord. And I would say this too, Last, last thing, you 
do you have a church that you go to, Raymond? Uh, talk to your pastor. Talk to your pastor and get counsel. This is something that I think is vitally important. Next question is from Anonymous. Anonymous says or asks, if God is against abortion, then why does he allow miscarriages? Uh, These are two diametrically opposed views, or these things are completely different. Let me explain Anonymous. And, And this is a common talking point against those who are just anti-God. Abortion is murder. Miscarriage is not murder. God, God makes it very clear that murder is evil. Murder is evil. Not killing, but murder. Intentionally ending life. And that's exactly what abortion is. For whatever reason, it's still murder. Now, having established that, if your question is then, well, why does God allow miscarriages? Miscarriages are heartbreaking. These are heartbreaking things. These aren't things that are planned. These are things that happen suddenly, unexpectedly. And abortion is planned. And it's evil. It's selfish. It's murder. Miscarriages are heartbreaking things that are the result of the fallen world that we live in. And, you know, again, this is intentionally killing and murder when you do, when you have an abortion. That's what abortion is. Now, let me talk about miscarriages for a second here because this is a very sensitive topic. And, And one thing that I think needs to be discussed Uh, because you brought it up anonymous. When miscarriages happen, it's not God's fault. It's not God punishing anyone. Again, they're unintentional. They're, They're just the result of us living in a fallen world. It's not because God is angry at somebody. It's not because they did something wrong. And sometimes when something like a miscarriage happens, people who are professing Christians ask questions like, why did this happen to me? Or what did I do wrong? The answer is, uh, we don't know why it happened. Bad things happen. Heartbreaking things happen, even to those who are walking with Jesus. And the answer, really the answer, is, or the question really is, who? Not why, but who? Who do we go to when we're hurting this badly? Who do we run to when we need comfort from this pain? And the answer is Jesus. Instead of dwelling on questions that start with why, uh, we're never going to get an answer for those things. And it's futile because we go down rabbit trails and our thoughts can easily be distracted from hearing God's voice. God is a God of comfort for anyone that has suffered. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us that he comforts us with a supernatural comfort. So instead of wondering why something happened to our lives, why bad things happened to good people, uh, we run to the one who we know, that's Jesus Christ, who gives us hope. He gives us comfort. He gives us his word. You know, when... Peter would write that God has given us who are believers everything we need for life and for godliness. He's saying not just to be fruitful, that will happen, but he's saying that in the difficult things that happen in life, you never have to wonder if God has everything you need. He does. He will supply the grace that you need when you need it. 
But the key, Anonymous, is that you have to be with him in order to benefit from his grace. If you are distant from him, if you have allowed sin in your life, if anger has made your heart hard, then you're no longer able to benefit from his grace. So I know that's sort of a side note to your question, Anonymous, but I think it's very important. God is against abortion, but that has nothing to do with miscarriages. Thank you for your question. Phone lines are open. Uh, let me quickly give you those phone numbers. 210-340-9585. 210-340-9585. Uh, the toll-free number, 877-630-5757. 877-630-5757. The next question is from Jacob. I was asked to pray with a woman, but I didn't want to give the appearance of anything inappropriate, so I said no. Then after leaving the conversation, I felt like I had missed an opportunity to minister to someone. Do you think what I did was wrong? Jacob, first of all, I love your heart. Um, I love your heart, and this is a good question. Uh, It's a pretty easy one. Yes, I think what you did was you, you probably were wrong. You missed an opportunity here to, miss, to minister. And, and so let me say this. Obviously, we're to abstain from, from evil. And we don't want to give the appearance of anything that's evil. And, and we get that. That should always be at the forefront of your mind. But you don't want to use this way of thinking uh, to turn your thinking into a legalistic way of processing things. I think what happens, and and I see this time and time again, you know, Christians, well-intentioned Christians, uh, they miss out on what God has planned for them because they are more interested in legalistic things. Um, You know, in this situation, Jacob, obviously I don't know you, I don't know the details of what your question was, but, but if somebody comes to you and they need help, our, you know, our first inclination should be, well, let me see how I can help. It doesn't mean that you'll be able to right away, but your heart should be willing to find out how you, especially if it's somebody's asking for prayer. If somebody's asking for prayer, you know, I, I think about Jesus. You know, in... Uh, when 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 Jesus had the encounter with the woman with the issue of blood, uh, can you imagine if Jesus would have said, uh, "I'm sorry, I can't talk to you," or or John chapter four when the woman had the woman at the well when and Jesus was there alone, and and there was an encounter, a conversation that that Jesus had with the Syrophoenician woman. Uh, Look at what he would have missed out on. He, he doesn't think that way. He's always looking to minister to the people that are around him. And we don't want to miss out on these opportunities, Jacob, because we are thinking legalistically. Now, again, I think this is appropriate to to be careful. But can you imagine if if Jesus there in Luke chapter 7... He's walking and he sees a funeral procession there and he meets the lady that the Bible calls the widow of Nain. And this woman is suffering, struggling, crying because she's a widow whose only son has passed away, indicating she has nobody left. There's nobody there. And she even had to hire professional mourners is probably what happened. So there was a trail of people wailing and crying out because she had lost really the only person that she had. And as Jesus is walking, can you imagine if he said, well, I can't minister to her. She's a woman, so I don't want to be inappropriate. No, in fact, it says in Luke chapter 7 that Jesus spoke to her directly and his heart went out to her, literally is what it says. 
and we don't want to miss these opportunities. I understand. Again, I do. You know, I here at the church, sometimes we have people that walk in out of the blue, and sometimes there are women who by themselves or just come and they're they're needy, they need help, they're looking for somebody to pray with. And before I, you know, say anything else, I want to know what's going on and see how we can help. Obviously, I can't allow disruptions and I can't allow anything to happen when there's a school that's going on. But my first inclination, my first thought shouldn't be, well, I need to be legalistic here. And if the opportunity allows for me to pray, I'll sit in a public area and, and pray because I want to be able to help. Sometimes, you know, uh, like uh, like on Friday nights, we uh, after service, we have uh, people from our pastor's class. They come up to the front and and they pray. And they're standing there so that people can pray with them for whatever is going on. Well, sometimes, and it's not often, but can you imagine if if somebody uh, came up to a woman, came up to a man, and just was going through the most difficult time in her life, and then he would say, no, I can't pray with you. And you can grab somebody and pray together, but if somebody's hurting, you want to be able to minister to them. I promise you, Jesus is not going to be uh, upset that you gave the appearance of evil when you're praying with somebody. Again, use your discernment, but uh, Jacob, I, I think you already know the answer to your question. Um, we are inside, I think, four minutes now, five minutes, four minutes. And so I don't think we have any more time to take calls. Um, so we do have some more questions that have been submitted. Christopher asks, what does it mean that God loved Jacob but hated Esau? If God is love, why does it say that he hates? Christopher, great question. And I think this is one that's important and often misunderstood. Obviously, we know that God didn't hate Jacob in the sense that um, he was going to send him to hell, that he was predetermined, predestined to be uh, in hell, or Esau, to be in hell, and he was never going to be the object of God's affection. What God is doing here in describing Jacob and Esau and God's relationship to both of them is descriptive of God's heart towards those who love him. It's not Esau, the person that he hated, but it's what Esau stood for. And Esau was in rebellion to God. God hates sin. And there are times when the Bible will use sort of the euphemism or, 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 or sin personified and, and direct what appears to be the wrath of God towards a person, but God isn't like that. What God is saying here in Jacob and Esau's example is that he hates sin. He hates the damage of sin. He, and, and it's so far off, so far uh, diametrically opposed to the love that God has for those who are his. And so to those who are in rebellion to God, he hates that their lives and their hearts are full of sin. So it's what Esau represents here. It's Esau personified. His sin, his hard heart is what God hates. We know that, and Peter would write that it is God's desire for all men to be saved. Well, how could that be true if God hates people? Well, the truth is, the answer is, he doesn't hate people. He hates sin. And that he hates the effect of sin. And Esau here is uh, a representation of rebellion to God. And God hates that rebellion. 
And this is important too because, you know, November 30th for me, 1997 is the day that I got saved. God didn't hate me on November 29th, the day before I got saved, when I was steeped in sin, even if I was far from him, but God loved me so much that he opened my eyes and extended salvation to me. I promise you Esau had every opportunity to soften his heart towards God. And this is what God hates. God hates the hard heart. He hates those that are in rebellion to God. But people are always the object of his affection. And this is important for us today, too. We're inside here one minute, so I'll wrap this up. But when we deal with people on a daily basis, people are never the enemy. They may be angry. They may be hard-hearted. But we can't fall into the trap of making them the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. People are the object of our ministry. So I hope that helps, Christopher. Well, you can hear the music. That means we are at the end of the Word to Stand Up for Life, the Monday edition. Don't forget, 7 o'clock tonight, Men's and Women's Bible Study, along with the youth here at Calvary Chapel. I'll see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Until then, God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.